Well, good evening. I want to add my word of welcome tonight. I know that some of you wouldn't be anywhere else but uh, gathered with God's people at Grace on this night, while others of you are joining us for the very first time. Uh, but whether you're an old timer or a new timer, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Queen Elizabeth II is the longest reigning monarch in British history. She reached that point on September, 5th, uh, September 9th, 2015, when she surpassed her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, who sat on the throne for almost 64 years. Now, while Elizabeth has the longer reign, Victoria had more children, at nine in total, uh, five daughters, four sons, many of whom, along with their children, married into a number of the royal houses in Europe, uh, Germany, uh, Denmark, Prussia, Romania, Russia, Spain, Sweden, earning Victoria the nickname the Grandmother of Europe. Can, can you imagine the combined political amperage gathered in one room at a Victorian family reunion. Even if half of them were there, absolutely remarkable. Well, you can take that number and run it right through the roof when we calculate the importance of the meeting at which we're looking tonight. So turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 19 and we're going to look at the last 16 verses that were read for us tonight. And as you turn there, I, I want to recount the events of this week leading up to this evening. And we'll begin uh, back on Sunday when Jesus triumphantly rode into Jerusalem. That was on Sunday. And then on Monday, feeling threatened by his arrival, the religious establishment began actively seeking to destroy Jesus. That was on Monday. Then on Tuesday, Jesus strategically addressed his followers and even some of his opponents. In fact, so great is the, the body of teaching from that day that it comprises about 25% of the book out of which our story for tonight comes, the, the Gospel of John. Well, that's Tuesday. Wednesday, Judas Iscariot diabolically consorted with the Jewish religious leaders to betray Jesus and hand him over into their hands. Then on Thursday, Jesus ate for the last time with his disciples. We know that as the Last Supper. He prayed with his disciples uh, for the last time. We know that as the high priestly prayer. And then he surrendered himself to the authorities who had been tipped off to his whereabouts by Judas Iscariot. And now it's Friday, and already it's been a busy day. Uh, the rel uh, religious leaders, including Caiaphas, uh, have declared Jesus guilty, and the civil leaders, uh, Pilate, uh, governor of Judea, Herod, the governor of Galilee, have declared Jesus not guilty. So what we have here at the outset of John chapter 19 is a, a, a little postlude, marking the time between Jesus' acquittal 
and his committal. Uh, That is between being declared innocent by the civil authorities and being given over to die at the hands of the religious leaders. And what we'll end up seeing after a, a brief look at this powerful little postlude are three grand ironies. Two tragic, one triumphant, all three of which apply to every one of us gathered here tonight. So, let's take a look at this postlude that uh, revolves around Jesus' two offenses, at least the offenses for which he was charged. There was a civil offense, and that's the one that concerned Pilate, and then there was a religious offense, and that's the one that concerned the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders. Well, what was the civil offense for which uh, Jesus was handed over to Pilate? And in some It was for being a threat to the social order. When Jesus was handed over to Pilate, Pilate asked for a list of accusations, and so uh, the Jewish leaders dutifully handed those over. The list included the uh, uh, allegation that Jesus was a criminal, uh, an insurrectionist, uh, and an imposter. But after conducting an investigation into those things, Pilate responded by stating, and you you can see it there in verse number four, I find no guilt in him. And then down there in verse number six, I I find no guilt in him. And then by seeking to release Jesus, you see that there in verse number 12. In the previous chapter, Pilate said in chapter 18, verse 38, he'd already said, I don't find any guilt in him. And and even appealed on Jesus' behalf to a Jewish law uh, for clemency that was refused by the people in favor of Barabbas, in whom there was found a boatload of guilt. I mean, this guy was a known robber and revolutionary and murderer. So Pilate then appealed to Herod, who was the governor of Galilee, Jesus' home state, if you will. And Jesus was sent back to Pilate, having been declared not guilty. Pilate's unwavering belief in Jesus' innocence and his desire to free him was intensified by a rising fear within himself about which we read in verses 7 and 8. Take a look with me. The Jews answered Pilate, we have a law and according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he's made himself out to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. More afraid? Afraid of what? Up to this point, we haven't seen that Pilate has been afraid of anything. What fueled his fear? Well, in the book of Matthew, we learn that when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, a note was brought into Pilate. And when Pilate opened it up, he found out it was from his wife. And this is what the note said. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Matthew 27, 19. So, in some, Pilate was objectively convinced of Jesus' innocence based on his own inquiry and that of Herod, and subjectively convinced based on his wife's tortured correspondence. 
Which brings us to the second offense for which Jesus was being tried. It was a religious one, and that's the one with which the uh, Jewish authorities were most concerned. And it was this, you can read it there in verse number eight, that Jesus had made himself out to be the Son of God. Now, this was a violation that was cited in their religious law. That is, they had statutory evidence uh, concerning Jesus' guilt, Leviticus 24.15. And this was a violation that was further uh, confirmed in religious court. That is, they had oral evidence of Jesus' guilt, Luke 22, 70 and 71. But this is also a violation that called for death. Interestingly, death by stoning. That's what the statutory law required in Leviticus. But the Jewish leaders called for death by crucifixion, death by hanging, so that Jesus would not only be known as one who was punished by man, but cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21:23. The appetite for vengeance among the Jewish leaders could not be satiated by flogging or punching or mocking or humiliating, all of which we see was done to Jesus in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter. No, their appetite for vengeance could only be satisfied by death. And so in verse number six, the religious leaders cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And then down in verse number 15, the entire community cries out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. In fact, so fearful and and forceful was their outcry that Jesus greatest defender in this fight, Pilate himself, buckles. And, and he, he buckles under the weight at two places. First, when the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy, that is, uh, 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 declaring himself to be the Son of God. And when this happened, Pilate re-entered his headquarters, and he goes toe-to-toe with Jesus in uh, an epic encounter. Let's take a look, beginning in verse number 8. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered Pilate, you, that is you, a a human leader, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That is from a divine ruler, the source of all power, and by implication, Jesus' father, since Jesus claimed to be the son of God, which is something that the Jewish leader should have recognized. And that's why Jesus' last words to Pilate were, therefore, he who delivered me over has the greater sin. You see, the Jews had the scriptures pointing to the Messiah. And and since the Jewish leader should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah by way of the scriptures, but they refused to, they, the ones who delivered Jesus over to Pilate, had the greater sin. Now this epic encounter between uh, Pilate and Jesus caused Pilate uh, with greater 
earnestness to release Jesus. And we know that from verse number 12, where we read, from then on, Pilate sought. Really, he kept on seeking. From then on, Pilate kept on seeking to release Jesus. Which brings us to the second point at which Pilate buckled under the weight of those who opposed Jesus. And that was when the angry crowd accused Pilate of what amounted to treason. You can see it there in verse number 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried and kept on crying, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. In other words, you're a traitor, Pilate. Since everyone who makes himself to be a king, like Jesus, who was legitimately a king, he, he fell in the royal lineage. He was, in fact, the son of David, Israel's uh, greatest king. Everyone who makes himself to be a king opposes Caesar and is therefore a traitor. So if you want to oppose him, Pilate, this traitor, you yourself are a traitor. And that outcry not only caused Pilate to buckle, but to break. It, it shattered his resolve to release Jesus. Now, to be sure, Jesus' innocence was important to Pilate. I mean, we, we can see that in the passage here, but, but not so important that it would take away from his commitment to his commander or any allegiance that might be afforded him by his community. And so after asking the crowd, shall I crucify your king? To which they replied, we have no king but Caesar. John writes, so Pilate delivered Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. Which brings us to the three grand ironies contained in this account. Irony number one, Pilate was correct. Pilate was correct. Jesus was innocent. But self-interest compelled Pilate to abandon truth even at the expense of Jesus' life. Now, we marvel at that. But when it gets right down to it, we can be a lot like Pilate, can't we? I mean, we, we can respect Jesus, we can engage Jesus uh, by way of the Bible, by way of prayer. We, we, we'll even defend Jesus in public, no less, if the circumstances are right. But when he cramps my style, when he convicts my way of thinking, when he challenges my priorities, all in ways that, that put me at odds with the prevailing currents of culture at large, then it's, it's easier to kill Jesus than to come to him. Irony number two. The Jewish leaders were correct. Jesus did claim to be the Son of God. They got that right. But self-interest made them blind to the fact that he really was the Son of God, making them who should have known better guiltier, according to Jesus, for his death. And we marvel at that. But then again, we have to admit that 
we can be a lot like Israel too. People who read the scripture and fail to recognize that Jesus is the center of scripture. We like to put ourselves at the center of the Bible, but it's really Jesus who is in that place. People who embrace religion while failing to recognize that Jesus came to fulfill and free us from religion. People who, like our multiple great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, want to be like God and take offense at Jesus, who is God. Not not the Jesus who can enhance my life, the one uh, to whom I pray when I'm not well or when I've hit a rough patch or there's some crisis going on, but the Jesus who has actual authority over my life. The Jesus by whom my life was given to me. The, the, the Jesus who sustains me uh, with life throughout my life and at the end of my life, I stand before as judge of my life. In these ways, it's easier to kill Jesus than to come to him. And yet, in the midst of these two tragic ironies, there's a third one. Irony number three. Today isn't bad Friday. It's good Friday. How how can it be that the death of the creator at the hands of his creatures can in any way be considered good. Well, this is Good Friday because, and and this is where Adam Day's Palm Sunday sermon really brings the cross into sharp focus for us. This is Good Friday because Jesus' sacrifice was the last sacrifice. Isaiah 40 tells us that the Messiah's death While it was torturously ugly for him, it was wonderfully beautiful for us because it was for our transgressions, your transgressions, your your transgressions, my transgressions. And Isaiah 52 informs us that the Messiah's death, while it was a picture of humiliation, was an even greater picture of exaltation because it was for the salvation of the world and the comfort of those who embrace it. This is why the symbol of salvation is the cross, not the empty tomb. It's the cross. Now, to be sure, God's people live and the power of the empty tomb. And we will gloriously celebrate that fact right here this coming Sunday. But we are saved by the power of the cross. And that's why when we virtually gather around the Lord's table right here on the 26th of this month, actually anytime we gather around the Lord's table, but the next time we'll do that as a church will be on the 26th of this month. We do so looking back to Good Friday. When Jesus broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
And as much as we'll do that looking back to this day, we'll, we'll do so looking ahead to the last day because how does the time of communion end? It ends when it said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The, our, our means of, of forgiveness, the, the absolution of, from our rebellion against God, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, our rebellion, our transgression, our sin is a lot like coronavirus. It's universal, it's invisible, and it's deadly. But our rebellion against God is not like coronavirus in this way. For coronavirus, there is no cure. But for our rebellion against God, there is a cure. And that cure is Jesus. Available to all, but applied only to those who have examined the evidence and acknowledged him to be what he in fact is. The innocent son of man and the true son of God. And if you believe that, this is a good Friday. And Sunday will be a happy Easter But if you've never considered that before, and you say to yourself tonight, you know, I I believe that, then this is your night. Encourage you to to, uh, give yourself to Jesus, to recognize that his death was for your sin and all the guilt that accompanies it. Because on the cross, all your sin, all your guilt was swallowed up forever. So why don't you give it to Jesus right now? It's already been paid for. You just need to hand it over to him. And if that's something about what you'd like to to talk with someone uh, before you do or as you do, we'd be happy to chat with you. You can reach out to us even tonight at prayer at graceevfree.org. That's prayer at graceevfree.org. Let's pray together. Father God, on this Good Friday, we thank you for Jesus who loved us and died for us and freed us from our sin and our rebellion. For having given himself to us and for us, we praise your name and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.